Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Time Magazine's Washington correspondent, Phil Elliott. Phil's been with Time since 2015. Before that, he spent almost a decade at the Associated Press where he covered politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House. He's covered three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump. Phil gives us his insights into the beginning of the Trump administration and how it's different from past presidencies, his observations about current and future political battles, and his concerns about the safety of reporters. This is the third administration you've covered. You were with Associated Press for about a decade. I think you covered George W. Bush. I know you covered Obama when he first came in. Talk about the differences and similarities from your perspective. There's certainly a difference between covering George W. Bush's Republican White House and Donald Trump's Republican White House. In in W's White House, things were even at the end, meticulously scheduled. The president arrived early for events. You knew a week in advance what was going to happen. There was was an order. There was a system. There was a methodology there. With Donald Trump's White House, really you're you're finding out the middle of the day changes the schedule. Um, he's, He's doing all of these things for show and for cameras, but there's no access to the president himself. I remember at the end of George W. Bush's administration, he he was having a photo op um, in the Roosevelt Room, and he would he would he called us in. It was a smaller group, but it's still representative of the major news organizations. And someone shouted a question, and he smiled, and he he went about it and spent about twenty minutes answering the question. Um, now you shout a question at Donald Trump, he waves, and you're ushered out. And you spend the next half hour waiting for the next photo op where he has different, in this case, healthcare executives sitting at a table as stage props for him. It really is a different way and a different level of respect for what the press does and our role. Throw in there President Barack Obama. I spent two years every day at his White House um, or at the White House covering his administration, I should say, um, for when I was with the Associated Press. And there was a lot less effort to show respect and deference to reporters. Part of that was 
President Obama didn't need the press to win his first term in office. I know we get a lot of grief about being in the tank for Obama or his secret cheerleaders. As someone who, who covered his campaign, who covered his White House, they certainly did not think that they owed us anything um, in terms of helping us do our job or being responsive. Um, you saw some of the seeds of what Mr. Trump is doing now take, take hold during Obama. For instance, he would do his weekly radio address not to the radio networks, but to YouTube. Um, he would not release – I remember there was a big uproar, um, at least in terms of official Washington – when he released his State of the Union address on Medium instead of giving it to the network anchors over lunch. So there was the efforts to circumvent us as a press corps really got creative under President Obama. And I find it, it, it irony is not the right word, but fitting perhaps, that the Trump administration has seen how you can go around the press and get your message out and they're using some of the same tactics that Obama did. And now liberals in this town are losing their mind. And all of us are just like, just want to shout, but you started this. You made this possible. You, you planted these ideas. And now you don't like the consequences. Well, this is why, you, especially in, in the building of the White House, you need to consider what the next guy inherits and how it can be used. How about being shut out of uh, press conferences or, or news briefings uh, like the New York Times and Washington Post? Did that occur previously? It did. It, it wasn't being shut out of official briefings, but President Bush would have conservative columnists come in for lunch or have a meeting. Um, President Obama did the same thing. He would have the liberal um, talk show hosts, the liberal columnists come in, uh, to have a, in most cases, a, on, on background, meaning you can get the gist of what I'm saying and report it out, but please don't say the president said this um, directly. Uh, but th- that's a far cry from having the president or senior officials sit down to, with sympathetic audiences to go through the thinking, here's the behind the scenes, here's our wrangling, here's our strategy, that's not the same as having the White House press secretary, who's a taxpayer-funded employee, whose job it is to speak to the press and answer the press's questions, say he is not going to do the briefing in the White House press room, but instead in his office and have treat it like a nightclub and say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I was very proud of Time Magazine, um, my, our, our White House correspondent, Zeke Miller, um, objected strenuously to that, and he and the Associated Press both refused to participate in that briefing where CNN and the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune um, were not invited at the expense of some other outlets that have a fraction of the circulation. I, I think that was a very strong sign, and it is not such an, act, uh, an action from the press secretary, Sean Spicer, has not happened again. The sort of back-and-forth adversarial positions between the White House press corps and, and the president, that, that sort of goes with the territory. And, and it and, should. And mo- right. And most of the time it's sort of inside baseball uh, as opposed to being uh, for public debate. But it seems that this administration, by labeling the media— 
an enemy of the American people seems like compared to back in Richard Nixon's day, but actually coming out and saying it, does that change the playing field at all? It does, and it, 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 it's on us to make sure it doesn't change our coverage, that it, there is, it is human nature to just try to react and just, okay, tit for tat, like, you say we're the enemy, I'm going to say you're a fascist. Like, no, that, that is not what we're here to do. Our, our job is to be, take the criticism, and some of it is fair. Um, there, there, if, you, if you think you're above criticism or improvement, you have bigger problems as a professional here. Right. Uh, but to take a step back and say, okay, he is doing this, and here is why he's doing this, and say, okay, let him do that. Let us not prove him right. Let us prove him wrong and say, and through our journalism, this is what, what we know, this is what we have context about, this is what we can prove. Um, and he, dear consumer of our content, here is our work product. Please judge us on the work product, not on a 140-character tweet the president sends out on a Friday night. But there, does there, the, that, the responsibility is on us to prove him wrong and not to fight him with content, fight, fight him with our deeds, and not try to battle him mano a mano on Twitter. Because one, we will lose, and two, that, that just proves the president correct. But if he lays the groundwork, he and, and his associates lay the groundwork, uh, calling the media the enemy of, of the American people. Doesn't that uh, lay the foundation for the public to disregard even uh, stellar journalism, let alone the day-to-day journalism? It does, and that's, that's the danger here. Let me put it this way. There are going to be days when the president needs us. Every president has one, and they're going to need to have the conversation with us. I need you to do this, or it would be it would be helpful to the nation if this. I was thinking um, a, sub, a couple stories at the Associated Press, where we would have conversations with the White House Chief of Staff that you have this story. It will put Americans' lives at danger if you publish it about operations that are underway at the moment. Will you consider to delay publication so as not to put Amer- specific Americans' lives at danger while we finish this? And generally speaking, the, con- the answer was yes. Um, our job as journalists is to get the truth out, but it's never at the expense of an, um, a human life. Right. Um, that th- these, there are very sensitive conversations that need to take place. Once you've poisoned the well and said we are enemies of the American people, it's very difficult for us to have those conversations. Um, at the same time, there are going to be times where we're going to have to try to figure out uh, he is going to need us to get out his point of view. And as journalists, it is our responsibility to represent. He is the chief newsmaker on the planet. His view matters, and we should, we should share with our readers, our audiences, what his view is. Um, how how are we how does he expect us to have any credibility to to broadcast his view when he already says don't trust what these people are saying it, it's a it's a logical box that he's putting himself in and i'm not sure that anyone at the white house fully appreciates 
again, the long-term impact, let alone damage, that he's, he's inflicting on um, this part of American democracy. This hostile environment that's being created by the administration and, and exaggerated by the administration, I think that's a, a fair word. How does it affect, if at all, reporters' ability out in the field in dealing with the general public? Has this seeped into the general public to the point where it's making a reporter's job tougher? You know, I, I got, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, that there's always been a segment of the American public, of the American electorate, that has consistently refused to engage with reporters. I, I'm thinking uh, my first conservative political action conference. It's an every-year event that happens in the Washington area. Right, CPAC. The first, CPAC. It, it's, it is a thing. It is... Um, Mark Salter, who was chief of staff to John McCain, likened it to the cantina scene from Star Wars. <laughs> you, you get <laughs> there are the freak shows, the unsavories, the idealists, the travelers. You get a little bit of everything um, at CPAC. But my first CPAC was in 2007. And I'd go up to people and just be like, hey, you are, you are the grassroots of part of this Republican Party. Tell me. What are, what are your priorities? What, what are you thinking about? What, what, why are you here? And you would have people just look at you and, and start quoting Bernie Goldberg, um, start quoting Sean Hannity at you, <laughs> saying, you are terrible, you're disrespectful, you're disruptive, you're horrible. So this whole notion that we are not to be trusted is not something that, that Donald Trump created. This has been in the conservative ethos for a while. That said, no, at no point covering John McCain or Mitt Romney or any of the other people they defeated on their march to the nomination, did I ever feel, feel unsafe at their rallies. Donald Trump's rallies really crossed the line. He gave the, his audiences, both in the giant arenas and watching at home, permission to openly um, threaten us or try to intimidate us. Donald Trump led chants of CNN sucks at his campaign rallies. He called out campaign reporters, and it's worth noting, they were usually young, attractive female reporters from the networks by name from the stage while they're standing on the podium at the back of the room trying to do live shots. They are broadcasting his message live. He is attacking them on their own airwaves. Um, several these people are my friends. They have required Secret Service protection to their cars. They have required local police to escort them from the risers. We have had water bottles thrown at us. We've had people throw buckets of popcorn at us. While we're sitting there trying to cover President, then candidate Trump rallies, and they constantly would be. They are. They have been convinced by Mr. Trump and others that we're not telling the truth. Well, I've tried to have these conversations with the people during the campaign. Well, and it's usually and it's usually men. Well, sir, I'm here at this rally at expense to my organization. I'm spending my Friday night here in in Tuscaloosa to report on what Mr. Trump is saying. 
and to talk to his supporters and to reflect and bro- and to share with my readers why why you are his supporter help help me ex- understand this and it was and you would just get the CNN sucks I'm like well I don't work for CNN um, but I would like to and it was just a non-starter right. it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out not just as the president continues his campaign and he is continuing it, starting with super PAC ads this weekend. But how do congressional Republicans deal with this in the midterms in 2018? That you now have a president that can turn on the faucet of vitriol at anyone who stands in his way. Right now, it is the press before it was Hillary Clinton. If health care repeal doesn't happen, what do you think he is going to do? This is a president that thrives and is at his best in terms of communication strategy, not necessarily personal ethics, but he's at his best when he has an enemy to pit his audiences against. He's going to need an enemy, and that might be his own party. Um, if health care doesn't come through, tax reform doesn't come through, there's a whole host of things on his agenda. I mean, if the wall doesn't get built, he's going to have, he's going to want to, he's going to want to scalp. And that might be at the expense of House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Leader McConnell, that there are going to be consequences here, and it, it, it's really unpredictable. History is not a predictor here at all. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You talk about uh, his media savvy, but sometimes uh, questionable, perhaps personal ethics of what goes out through various forms of, of media. We've got this environment now, I think, that People would say that almost daily we're dealing with uh, falsehoods or, uh, to put it bluntly, lies, but certainly an alternative reality, if not uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts. As a, as a media person, how do you deal with this alternative reality that, that has very little to do with real-life situations or facts or data? Well, I have to tell you, covering Mr. Trump has made me so... It's only been 53 days, 
um, <laughs> has, and it's, yes, we, we now have daily counters, um, has forced me to question every assumption in my stories that, for better or for worse, you knew that when President Bush spoke, his words had, in, in a scripted setting, you knew his words had been fact-checked. There were researchers at the White House checking every statement to make sure that he couldn't be called out on it. President Obama had the same thing, a research staff that um, when the speechwriters would do something, would, would prepare remarks, the researchers would go over and basically fact-check the entire speech and circle things that they couldn't back up. Um, that's just responsible part of governing, because when the president speaks, the to- stock market watches, and you can, you can lose billions of dollars a day if you say something wrong. Right. President Trump doesn't so much care about this. Um, there's, there are two schools of thought in the White House among current staffers that trying to box Mr. Trump into something that is inauthentic will be to lose the mojo of the campaign, that his supporters want him to be authentic and say what he believes to be true at the time and trying to curb that is going to lose it, and then he would just become another politician, and that is going to lead to an up, um, a backlash against him and his agenda. The other less charitable is there's no point of trying to fix his incorrect facts because he believes them to be true. So he is going to say them, and he might say them right the first time. He's not going to say them correctly the second time. So at least let be let it be consistent. Let Trump be Trump, and you know what? It's going to be a terrible day on fact-checking sites. But most of Trump's conservative base, um, not even conservative base, his political base, because not it's not all that conservative. Um, will, they don't trust sites like factcheck.org. The number of emails and tweets I get when I when I talk about fact when I cite factcheck.org um, or Politifact. Like those are left-wing sites because they obviously found they they never criticized Hillary Clinton. They only criticized Trump. Like, well, that's because Hillary Clinton, while she had her problems, her research staff often kept her from saying things that were not true or didn't have a kernel of truth in them. Trump just kind of makes things up. He sees something on World Net Daily. It's gospel now, yeah. and that is part of the conundrum we find ourselves in. Um, you, you use the word lie. I'm a little leery of using that because that is to imply motive and intent that he knowingly said something that's not true. And I'm not sure he doesn't believe, I'm not sure he knows what he's saying is incorrect. The New York Times used that in a headline recently, correct? They did on A1. Um, I, 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 that's a choice they made. It's not a choice that I would use on a regular basis. Uh, but I think there are instances where you can where you can say you can use the word lie, but you need to be airtight on it. For instance, Michael Flynn, the National Security Advisor to the President of the United right. States, had to resign after he provided not just that he he misled people, but he when the vice president-elect Pence at the time, asked him a question about contact with the Russian ambassador. This is something Flynn met with the Russian ambassador. Right. And he told the, the 
then-Vice President-elect, no, I didn't go out and deny it. And Pence went out and denied it, based on Flynn's word, but which later proved to be not true. That it wasn't a matter of, did Flynn misread something? Did, he mis- did, did someone mislead him? Flynn met with someone. He said he didn't meet with someone. You would know, that's, that's a pretty clear-cut answer of whether you misled or lied. Um, there are times when you can use it. I think using a lie regularly without the appropriate level of consideration really just makes us look like we're setting our hair on fire and overreacting to everything. Because lie and, has intent involved. Yeah. And it's, it's, if you're trying to cover your tracks, as Flynn obviously was, you can use that. But if everything is a lie, it loses its impact. And it's all of a sudden you're at this, you're at this point where the, the words, words lose their impact the more you use them. It's like you have to, like everyone screaming, like every, there, there's a protest happening on almost every day here in Washington. You see these signs, fascist, Nazi, you put Hitler's mustache on now President Trump. They did during the health care debate with then-President Obama. Like, those are really incendiary and specific words that really, you throw them around at your own risk, and you just, in, in, in the process, you make yourself look ignorant because you just don't understand where they're coming from. Phil, jumping subjects just a bit, you uh, just recently did a uh, pretty in-depth story on the inside of the Trump White House. Uh, Terrifying place. I know that you covered the beginnings of the Obama administration as well. Can you do a compare-contrast of the similarities and differences between the two? Rooted in all of this is how each of these men ran their campaigns. Barack Obama's campaign was a machine. It had staffers everywhere. It had multiple layers of redundancy. It had, uh, it had more than 1,000 people, all of whom worked on the campaign for, in some cases, more than two years, who knew the president, knew his record, knew his agenda, and they all wanted jobs in the administration. Trump ran his campaign with like 70 people. Um, there aren't a lot of people who were in the foxhole with him, let alone who were loyal to him. So they've, brought, they've, they've had to graft on a bunch of outsiders, many of whom had never met Trump until um, the transition, to try to come in, get up to speed on the president's uh, methods, his MO, his priorities, the people around him, and try to graft their wrapped their abilities onto his vision. That wasn't the problem. That was not the case with um, President Obama. So as a result, you had a lot of people crowded into the West Wing under Obama. That, like, there there were. It wasn't du- duplicative, but there were a lot of assistants mm-hmm. and a lot of assistant press secretaries, a lot of deputy press secretaries, and a. a, a Director of Communications, Deputy Communications Director, Associate Communications Director, Media Director, Specialty Media Director, TV Booker. Now it's now. I mean, we just had the Communications Director for the White House start just the other day. That we've gone through more than a month without a Communications Director for the White House. The Toby Ziegler role from the West Wing. Right. That this is a very senior job that just went unfilled. Um, and as a result, it's been chaos inside that building. Um, part of it is. Trump 
doesn't really like to be boxed in. He likes to float. He sees people in the hallway. He waves them in. He wants to have a conversation. But that runs so far outside the, the protocol of how, how typical White Houses are run. Barack Obama got, before he even got scheduled a meeting, there were drafts of memos that were circulated that the staff secretary, Lisa Brown, um, who's, who was Al Gore's counsel, very well respected now, she's the chief counsel at Georgetown University, would like make sure people were using the right font and the right <laughs> type size, that the margins were right, that there was a uniform process before Barack Obama took a meeting that there were that it wasn't people were people weren't vamping. You had policy ideas, you had footnotes, you had binders, that you have a choice, Mr. President. It's this or that. And the staffers had had meetings leading into it. Now it's this free form, hey, I I hear healthcare is an issue, who has ideas type meeting, which just blows Republican professionals' minds that this is what's happening. As a result, Reince Priebus is scurrying through the West Wing like he's he's got a tipster outside the Oval Office who who tells him, "Hey, someone just walked in. They didn't have an appointment. They didn't have a meeting. There's no agenda. Um, you might want to go in there." And as a result, Reince Priebus the other day had to go into the Oval Office, pull the President's Homeland Security Advisor out of the Oval, and, and yell at him in a hallway just a few feet from Jared Kushner's office, the son-in-law slash senior advisor, and dress him down, saying, "You don't just walk into the Oval." It doesn't matter if the president calls you in. You just don't do it. This is how bad policy gets made. This is how just this is how things go off the rails, and this is how the president gets harebrained ideas and starts tweeting about things that have not been vetted, haven't been gone through, haven't has ideas that have not gone through the White House lawyers, and your your basic the president's tweets now set a communications agenda that is far afield from anything the strategists and the pollsters came up with. It's it's truly it's it's an ad lib presidency, and so it's it's just fascinating to watch. One last area we can hit on, and and I know you did an article also recently about the GOP uh, revolt, perhaps threatens Trump's uh, agenda. Uh, Let's let's just talk about the the relationship between Congress and the G, GOP mainstream and and President Trump. It seems like most people are coming in line because they fear Trump's popularity. Is that short lived? Are we going to see a, a revolt before the twenty eighteen? I think the, I think Congress and the White House are on a collision course, and it's going to be really, really messy and fantastic for us to cover because everyone wants to talk about it. There are 535 members of Congress and every one of them wants to see their name in print. So as a result, there are no private meetings anymore. Everyone with a Twitter account, everyone with a cell phone, um, a lot of us who cover, who've been here a while, have a lot of members of Congress on our cell phones uh, that we can text and be like, hey, you just met, hey, heard you were at the White House, what happened? And they're ready to dish um, because they have no loyalty to this president. A lot of Republicans favored someone else. Very few of these Republicans in Congress actively campaigned for this president. That This was not someone who came from the Republican ranks. He is not someone, frankly, they think is going to have their back for the midterms. 
He's not someone who's shown a lot of interest in raising money for the party. So that's the political end. On the principal end of it, they don't know that he's all that conservative. They don't have a lot of faith that he's going to have their back on the conservative flank on this. And he does, finally, he just doesn't understand a lot of times how Congress works, that Congress is a very Byzantine system. For instance, we're talking about this, this health care repeal bill right now. Under the Senate rules, the Budget Control Act, and as amended, the Byrd Amendment, there are really limits to what, ha- what can be done in it, and it has to start in the House. It can't start in the Senate because it's a, the budget bill, and then it's going right. to go through reconciliation, which is not the same as conference. Uh, there are so many arcane rules of what can and can't be in legislation done the way that it's being structured, so they only need 51 Senate votes, that it's going to end up leaving a lot of Republicans in the House concerned that they're not getting everything they were promised, the Senate is saying we're not going to roll over and break our rules and be subject to you know, lawsuits because we didn't follow the Budget Control Act, um, that there's just this lack of understanding about how and why Washington works the way it does. And President Trump is still proud of the fact he was elected to come in and bust the system, to blow it apart, kick the door in, and say, in CEO fashion, I want this to happen. I was elected with millions of votes. You weren't. Do it my way. I'm in charge. And Paul Ryan, to this point, the Speaker of the House, has been willing to go along and try to get him what he wants. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, he's a wily guy. He is not going to go along um, and roll over just because the man at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue wants him. Like Mitch McConnell's, uh, for even even Democrats in town um, praise him as an evil genius when it comes to Senate policy that, or process that he can right. stall and delay anything he really wants. And let's it's worth noting, keeping in mind that this is Mitch McConnell's sixth term. He came to Congress. He was elected in 1984. This isn't his first president, and probably won't be his last. Um, he is playing the long ball here. He is a devoted student of the Senate, and I, I found it amusing that President Trump appointed his wife the transportation secretary, perhaps thinking that would be something he could hold over McConnell. McConnell's like, yeah, you can fire my wife. She has, she, she has money. She doesn't need this job. She's been in the cabinet before. Um, and there's really, there's, it's really an interesting power dynamic to watch the Senate and the White House uh, head towards this collision. And meanwhile, the Democrats are scrambling to to even select a, a party chair. Well, we ha- we have a party chair I now. Know. Uh, but we all, the person whom he defeated is now his vice chair, so it's right. trying to be this kumbaya moment. But it's this, the Democrats need to figure out first what they want to be and then who they want to lead them. Um, they seem to have gone in the opposite order there. Um, and there are... The, the 2018 map for the Senate is going to be rough. Um, just there in Ohio, Sherrod um, right. Brown, Brown. Ha- is going to have a potentially difficult re-election bid. He's not going to have a presidential campaign at the top of the ticket the way he did last time. That said, Josh Mandel, the Republican likely nominee, um, has also lost this before. So it's, it's going to be an interesting... Um, dynamic of the Republican Senate, it looks like, at least it, 
the way the map is structured now or sketched out on my on my dry erase board, looks like Republicans can probably hold the Senate. The House, though, I mean, there are there are what basically two dozen House members that won election in 2016 in districts that Hillary Clinton carried. Um, that there is an openness to an alternative to straight Republican Party ticket votes, that these are districts that rejected Donald Trump while still voting in a Republican member of Congress, those are going to have millions of dollars poured into them. Um, And it's why Democrats might be able to get the House, question mark. Um, I know there are a lot of smart people working on it and a lot of money being spent. And looking down the road, former Attorney General Eric Holder, and Barack Obama and a lot of people in the party are looking even one turn past that on this clock at the redistricting that happens after the 2020 uh, census in the hopes of reshaping these congressional districts. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of money spent on House, state House, state Senate, uh, state ledge races um, in the next couple of years trying to turn these state houses in a way so these state houses don't draw gerrymandered districts to favor Republicans. They, favor, they draw gerrymandered districts to favor Democrats. Phil, as always, fascinating information. Your job is probably one of the best right now. <laughs> for it's, it's, a, it's, a ble- it's an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> for excitement and from a journalistic standpoint. I hope we can check back with you uh, later on and, and keep pace with the, the goings-on inside the Beltway. Anytime, Tom. Today, we've talked with Phil Elliott. He is the Washington correspondent from Time magazine about the Trump administration. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts. Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it at iTunes. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.